and welcome to this week's FSF podcast. Um, I'm Jules and with me are Ben and Helen and we're joined today by Helen Moylet. Helen is an early years consultant and writer. She co-authored Development Matters with Nancy Stewart and that's the document that every early years educator uses to guide their good practice. She was also the national lead for the Every Child a Talker programme. Helen has been head of an early years centre and has worked in schools and as a university lecturer. She is Vice President of Early Education and tutors on the MA and PGCE courses at the Centre for Research in Early Childhood in Birmingham. Helen has dedicated her career to improving the learning opportunities for our youngest children. She continues to be a voice for them and for those who work with them. So welcome Helen and thank you for joining us today. Um, we're going to be discussing some of the social and educational issues arising from the pandemic and the ways this is impacting on children's rights and highlighting the inequalities already present in our society. And the first question that we had really was, what are the main areas where inequalities were already present for children and families before COVID-19? Well, I would say that the main ones that, you know, cover an awful lot are poverty and racism. And bearing in mind that we are either the fifth or the sixth richest country in the entire world, um, it is shocking that we are also one of the most unequal countries in the world. I mean, you know, there's been a lot written about that, like the spirit level and other books that actually, you know, and we've had since then, um, we've had 10 years of austerity, which has left us in what has been called a state of disastrous social fragility, which, as I say, for such a rich country is outrageous, really. Um, you know, the, we've had a lot of discussion recently about racism on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, applies to this country in quite shocking ways. I mean, you know, if anyone was feeling that we'd somehow tackled institutionalised racism, given the number of reports we've had about it and the number of chances we've had to try and put some of this right, I mean, it's difficult. Obviously, it's a complex problem. But it's a problem that is not that is sometimes caused or exacerbated by poverty, actually. And, you know, the coronavirus stuff has brought that out, really. I mean... I liked what um, Anne Feuchtwang, who's the chief executive of the National Children's Bureau, said about it. She said, we may all be experiencing the storm of coronavirus together, but we are not all in the same boat. Mm -hmm. The government's data shows the extent which over the past four years, children in low-income families have been cut adrift and are already experiencing unacceptable hardship. Now, you know, we've seen all the cuts to vital services like children's centres and support for children with special needs and disabilities and, you know, that huge impact that that's had on families' ability just to even feed their children. I mean, there's a huge rise in food banks, which again is an outrageous thing in this country. But, you know, we've got people having to depend on those. And given that the United Nations talks about, you know, the United Nations um, Convention on the Rights of the Child talks about every child's, that the best interest of every child must be a top priority in all decisions affecting children. All those decisions which have affected children to do with children's centres and availability of services and all of those things have affected poor people more, um, disproportionately more than anyone else. And unfortunately, Children from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups are more likely to be poor, more likely to be in receipt of benefits, more likely to be in poor housing and more likely to have 
um, needs centred around SEN and disability. So we can see that, you know, we've had this huge impact and not forgetting as well, according to the National Day Nurses Association survey, we have nursery workers who are poor, who are on benefits, 44% of them. Now, you know, we're talking about some very poor people, not only coming to nurseries and settings, but also working with the children who are coming in. And that has to be bad. We've also seen really, I mean, we know the, the pernicious effect of racism on society, but I mean, that has really been brought into sharp relief, not only by the Black Lives Matter movement, but also by the Office of National Statistics' own government, you know, funded report, really, on healthcare and what happens for people who have been affected by COVID and, you know, seek out health services. Um, and what we discovered that black people in England and Wales are four times more likely to die from COVID-19 than white people. And that Bangladeshi and Pakistani heritage people are about three and a half times more likely, and those of Indian origin, two and a half times more likely. Now, if you strip out some of the variables involved in that, which, of course, are the variables that affect those groups disproportionately anyway, like poverty and poor housing, diabetes, um, etc., you strip those out, it still comes up with the fact that black people are twice as likely to die. Now, you know, that only has to beg questions about, you know, how are black people and others from minority ethnic groups treated in the healthcare system? Yeah. You know, are they treated with the same care and respect as white citizens? I, you know, clearly they're not. So we've got big problems. And those big problems have just been thrown into sharp relief by COVID, but they were always there. So, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of things that might have been amplified then by the pandemic because I mean all of those children who are suffering from those disadvantages are likely to be um, at risk of learning delays of various sorts because of you know social conditions etc um, insecure attachment poor health obviously and educational underachievement and trauma without the trauma of whatever they might have been through to do with COVID. So, I mean, it was a pretty, pretty bleak picture for some of our children before they then had to go into lockdown. And, you know, all the risk, you know, the risks on top of what was already there for them um, have come along as a result of that. So, yeah. around, um, numbers of children from um, black and ethnic minority groups who have attended nurseries right the way through even during closure have, have we got any figures to see whether I don't know that would be interesting yeah it would be interesting to know wouldn't it because I know certainly settings have been worried some settings certainly have been worried about the fact that some of the children who are entitled to attend because of disadvantage or because they're the children of key workers have not turned up um, and that might be for we don't know what the reasons are but it could be fear of going out fear of the you know the virus and the fact that the circumstances they're living in may be that you know they're really worried they may be shielding anyway so they can't um but also they may be worried about the you know that if the if their parents are working in the health service or in high risk occupations like driving buses or whatever then you know we're going to have people bringing more yeah. their children bringing more germs back home again so I mean you know there's all sorts of reasons why they might not have attended but we don't know I don't know if there's any figures I suspect not but who knows I mean we could find out from the sector if there is a you know whether where there are 
any differences in groups attending. I don't know. It'd be really interesting, wouldn't it? Mm, it would be. And I don't know whether any of the organisations have got those figures, like the Early Years Alliance or... See that, maybe. You know, yeah. might be worth asking, though. Helen, I know in an article you wrote for us very recently, you and what you've just said, it, it really made me think about, you quoted Article 25 of the United Nations um 1948, let's remember, 1948, <laughs> Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it just really made me think about where we are still at today. And as you said, where we're still at before COVID yeah. arrived with us. And it's just that everyone has the right to a standard yeah. adequate for the health and well-being of himself and herself and his family. Yeah. Just fundamental. Yeah. I mean, you know, actually, and we are living in a country which could afford it. I mean, you know, we're going to hear an awful lot now, aren't we, about how we can't afford it, that we've all got to go into austerity again because, you know, we've got all of this. I mean, if you think about it, the recent decision to combine, without consultation, of course, um, DFID and the Foreign Office is an example of that because that is about Dominic Cummings saying we're not going to give people aid because we can't afford it. We're only going to now do because DFID, the Department for International Development, is about helping, you know, British aid is renowned as being good aid to people. Um, um, it's about helping people in countries where they desperately need help, where there's humanitarian reasons for it. The Foreign Office is all about promoting British interests abroad. And they are now, you know, DFID is going into the Foreign Office. That's how it's working. It's not an amalgamation. It's a takeover. And therefore, aid will be about promoting British interests abroad, not about humanitarian wealth, compassion, and the fact that we can afford to help people in less fortunate circumstances across the world. And we are renowned for it. And so we should be having colonised half the world. I mean, you know, this is a payback time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, but actually that's another example of the fact that it's money that rules. It's not about, you know, what. And it's on a big scale as well, those sort of big scale stuff as well as the small scale. I mean, you think about, you know, where the food banks have had to grow up. And I mean, a lot of local authorities have had their budgets severely cut and are saying they're going to go bankrupt, are running extended food bank systems along with local charities and everything else. You know, there's been a huge amount of that going on um, to try and cover and make sure that there aren't people going hungry. Yeah. Um, which, you know, just seems outrageous that we haven't got the standard of living that you know, the United Nations Declaration says we should have. Mm. And that even when people are working, we've got so many poor people who are working um, because they're in the gig economy and they don't have proper jobs. I mean, you know, there's no unionisation. There's no safeguarding for them. They don't have sick pay. They don't have holiday pay. They don't have pensions. They don't have any of the stuff that one used to take for granted as part of working. But that was, you know, you were, your employer was investing in you. Um, but actually now, of course, there's none of that. And, you know, if you take time off, then you don't get paid. You don't get anything. You saying, Helen, around um, uh, British interests abroad and how our government is, mm. is really promoting that beyond everything else. Looking at the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 24, I'm going to read you guys again. Mm. It says, Every child has the right to the best possible health. Governments must provide good quality health care, clean water, nutritious food. 
the clean environment and education on health and well-being so that children can stay healthy. Richer countries must help poorer countries achieve mm. this. Yeah. Mm. Totally. I mean, it's part of being global citizens, isn't it? And, you know, it's so worrying in a time when the planet is revolting against us, basically, because we are, you know, we've got a climate crisis on our hands. And yet we've still got this sort of side thinking that says, you know, our interests come first. And it's so it's so retrograde. And potentially it is back to, you know, the sort of post-colonial we actually have the right to have dominion over others. And, you know, we're learning slowly that we don't have the right to have dominion over animals, but we still don't seem to have quite got there. And we certainly haven't got there when we, you know, treat other people like this. It just seems, it seems inhuman and not something that, you know, any government should be doing. Particularly a government that has built up, despite our colonial past, that sort of reputation for being able to help people. Um, you know, it just seems wrong, you know, you know to put it mildly. But anyway. Part of me thinks that a lot of this stems from um, how the press has turned a lot of people against sort of wanting to help other people. Um, I think the media has, has got a lot of responsibility in that, um, or certain parts of the media at least. I think they have created this image that, you know, that we, we're helping all these people and it's not being used properly and things like this. And so the government are then playing on that to say, right, well, you know, because our, our people are saying this, we're, we're going to follow what, listen to what our people are saying. I mean, it, oh. it is just a, a vicious a nasty cycle as well. Mm, it is. I mean, we are the country that invented the hostile environment, remember? Mm. So, you know, and that was, that played right into the hands of all sorts of people. And right-wing press, I mean, it's the press is generally ruled by people who are very friendly to government, to this government, um, because they're all part of that sort of neoliberal ideology that it's all about meritocracy. And, you know, the rest of you can go and do whatever. Um, so, yeah. It's it's sad, isn't it, when we've got a media that, you know, are so prone to that sort of that lovely idea that, you you know, that the only thing that matters is news and that you just stir up anything because actually that sells a paper or it sells the online version or whatever, you know, I mean, or, yeah, a lack of moral purpose, I think. So still on a sort of socioeconomic level, perhaps as opposed just to education, we talked a little tiny bit earlier, we mentioned children's best interests. And I just wondered, what should we be doing at a policy making level to ensure children's best in interests are being met as we kind of move forward now, hopefully, full of hope, let's put it that way. Yeah, yes. And I'm always optimistic. I mean, yeah. despite all of that horrendous <laughs> stuff that is going on, because I really do. No, clear, you know, seriously, I really believe that we all have the ability to change something and we do you know in our small ways we can do what we need to do and one of the things that has come out of this really is that people have had time to reflect on what they're doing and you know what matters for children etc and yeah on a policy level I mean, it, there's two things going on with policy at the moment and the way in which the, the early years sector is engaging with government. I mean, we've got some very, very good people in the early years sector fighting for the survival of settings, actually. I mean, this is, this is you know, 
horrible to have to be doing. But I mean, you know, there are settings going out of business. And so they have to make the economic arguments to keep settings in business without a doubt, because otherwise, you know, we can argue all we like about pedagogy and curriculum, but if there isn't anywhere for the children to get there, you know, we might as well forget it, mightn't we? So I mean, that's really important that we've got that fight going on and saying we need a sector that is properly funded. I mean, without a doubt, we can't go on with the sort of mealy mouth funding that goes to the whole of the early years sector um you know and the fact that we've got you know everyone's in peril of going out of business including even maintained nursery schools i mean you know we just it's ridiculous so i mean all there's all of that going on so there's that fight we need a properly funded sector but we also need a sector with that we have a government that recognises that early years is an important stage in its own right. And that actually, children, young children are not just dependents of their parents and in the way of these parents who want to work. So they need to be given something called childcare, which can be, you know, as cheap as you like, because basically it's just, you know, looking after them and making sure they don't, you know, just making sure they're safe during the day, basically, so that we don't have any safeguarding scandals or whatever. But I mean, you know, generally it's such bottom line stuff. So... You know, we need to actually think about children as young children in the early years foundation stage. They are not just pupils in waiting, getting, we're not just getting them school ready in some sort of waiting room for school. Actually, they are children and citizens in their own right already. They are, you know, people with agency and actually... You know, we we are doing a really good job as and, and as worthy of decent funding as the school system. It is not just a place where we get because the problem is if we don't think like that, then we get all the when we be underfunded, and then we get all the pressure on reception classes to be more like key stage one. I mean, you know, it was explicit in the new so-called reforms of the EYFS that that reception was not doing a good enough job to get children ready for year one actually that's what it's about regardless of whether some of those children are going to be fine in the summer term of reception so basically they're still in the EYFS um you know um when even when they're in year one so you know and we've seen that it's subtly keeping on going isn't it you know we had the teaching schools council report which was rubbishing what was going on in the reception class we have bold beginnings um most unfortunate um we've had the revised early learning goals we've got the new offset inspection framework you know and we've got all this sort of subtly bringing into reception a lot of pressure um to actually be more like key stage one so i think we you know we could um if the government in policy terms listen to the experts and i don't just mean you know academics and people who have got time to write papers about all of this i mean practitioners they're the experts as well you know if they would listen to what practitioners are saying to them and you know would have professional and we have professional dialogue with government and proper professional level funding it would make an awful lot of difference that takes um, us back to what the government yeah. thinks about the staff and settings anyway doesn't it not only is it exactly extremely underfunded the respect for nursery teachers and practitioners is is just non-existent in government really so why yeah. should they in their eyes ask anyone who works in a nursery for what they think because they don't they wouldn't respect the answer anyway i know and they don't even ask i mean the reason the early years coalition was formed was because there weren't any representatives from the private voluntary independent sector being asked about anything from gfe it was like well 
you know, we just ask the primary school people basically because that's you know what's what it's all about. It's that they've got nurseries and reception classes. Why do we need to ask anyone else? And it's so disrespectful and so ignorant that you know I just think we need to. It would be great if we could have policy that was based on what we know about child development, for instance. If we, I mean, the reason we've got getting it right in the early years foundation stage, which was the research review commissioned by the early years coalition, is because they weren't being listened to. All those organisations that were plastered all over the front cover had no say in what was happening, which is dreadful, absolutely dreadful. I mean, unheard of. I mean, I was involved in developing the UIFS, Birth to Three Matters, the Tickell Review, Development Matters, you know, and those were all done in a democratic way with a huge amount of consultation. Now, a huge amount of consultation is a bit of a nightmare and gives you headaches. But actually, it's based on the fact that no one or two people have all the ideas, all the best ideas. And actually, if you want a sector to work together across a big age range like that, you've got to get them to come together and talk about these things. And you've got to take everyone's ideas and think about them and not just think you know what you're doing. I mean, you know, it's shocking. And then practitioners feel they're part of that whole system then. They don't feel like they've been given a document. When I was a teacher, you know, a new thing would come out. It would be distributed staff meeting. You'd have to go and do it, whatever it was. Mm. The way Development Matters was developed was was that everyone felt they were part of it and that their voices Mm. were valued. That just doesn't seem to be happening at all. No, well, it's not happening now because Development Matters, the the next version of Alternative Development Matters has been developed in great secrecy. So, I mean, you know, which is... It's just bonkers. I mean, you want to shoot yourself in the foot, that's the way to do it. But, yeah, you know, yeah. so we'll see what happens with that. But, you know, I'm not holding out a great deal of hope that it's going to be some really nice, coherent document that we're all going to think, yeah, that's great. It can't be a ticky statement tick list, which is the bone of my, bane of my life. But Well, exactly. But, you know, apparently it's not going to be. So that would be great. I mean, if they can manage that, that would be good. But, you know, let's see. As I say, I'm not holding my breath on that one, really. But, you know. I'm prepared to be made to look stupid because that would be good in this circumstance. <laughs> this, this whole bit of the conversation that we're having as well is really making me think about that concept of a lot of the, the conversations that policymakers have around early years. It swings around what adults think and what adults need, mm. whether that's um, mm. childcare for parents, all of, all of which is important, childcare yeah, for parents, yeah. you know, the importance of, of um, uh, management and the whole situation, stuff, whatever. Of course, all of those things are important, but it's that nugget, that little nugget, isn't it, of what, what, what do children think? Mm. Because as exactly. you said, Helen, they are citizens from the moment they appear in our mm. world, you know. Mm. Have opinions from a really young anyone who's spent any time. Oh God, yes. With a very small person, <laughs> even if they haven't yet, yet, even if they haven't got any language yet, they really have some opinions, you know. And and I well, think it's that, interesting, isn't it? You think of a two-year-old who's maybe only got the words no and yes. mine and a pointy finger. I mean, you know, they can certainly express an opinion with those. <laughs> they really can, and it is interesting, isn't it? Because it's exactly what you said about, you know. Uh, our kind of our, our, our leanings as, as in our policy making in our government's policy making is kind of just bent the wrong way you know they're not mm. thinking about children's best interests oh, no and it's not you know it's really difficult isn't it to 
if they would just listen to people, what they need to do is recognise their own lack of expertise. Because, you know, I wouldn't dream of trying to influence government policy on the secondary maths curriculum, for instance, <laughs> because, you know, that's not areas I know anything about. So, you know, I wouldn't go there. But it doesn't seem to hold them back from thinking that because, you know, I'm a secondary teacher who's worked as an advisor in the DfE for two years, I can then pontificate about early years, you know. I mean, that just seems... You know, there are some generic skills involved in teaching. I will give you that, you know. And I mean, yeah, we probably know what they might be, but they don't extend to writing a curriculum framework, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, and it's that, isn't it? But we've seen that all the way along, that this government just does what it wants to do. It's not about consultation. And, you know, I think we have to recognise that. And I think we're going to come very soon to the lines in the sand, actually, when some of this stuff comes out. Because what we've been doing so far, we've had the reform DYFS, we've had, we've been told that Development Matters is going to be rewritten. We haven't been asked to be part of it, as far as I know. I don't know anyone who has. Um, and those things are going to come out and be out there. And at some point, we're going to have to say either yes or no to it, because what we've done so far is be very, very assiduous in trying to get government to listen. I mean, you know, there've been lots of things where we've sort of got back to them and said, no, this isn't okay. You need to do this, the consultation. We've tried to, you know, put all the points of view in the consultation responses. We, I mean, we did a lot of work in the education I was involved in it with um, responding to them about the primary assessment consultation and why it was an inappropriate thing to base, you know, a complete change of the, the UIFS on a primary assessment consultation, which didn't ask for it. I mean, you know, They've basically gone ahead with that. But we've kept on talking to them because it's that feeling of actually, you know, you can't just walk away because we are the people who, you know, know what about child development. We know that we've got things to offer. And actually, we should keep trying to advise as much as we can. But there must come a point where you just have to say, no, we're not engaging. Actually, this is not all right. And we're not going to do it. Because otherwise, what we do is just whittle away children's rights all the time. You know, we are then colluding in it. It's always a difficult one, isn't it, to make that decision as to when I'll go along with this because I think there are bits of it that we can probably do. Or, you know, like when I was a head teacher and things used to come in, I used to look at them and think, well, how much of this do we have to do? How much of it can we get away with not doing? And, you know, all of that. You know, you make those decisions in life, generally. I mean, you know, that's sort of just realistic, isn't it? You know, and but there must come a point where there are things that you think actually if I'm asked to do that I'm not doing it because it's not okay for children actually or it's not okay for the staff or it's not okay you know so I'll be interested to see what happens because I think they're sort of running out of cooperation really because you know we've tried really hard to cooperate with a government that is not cooperating with us you know I mean I've got enough experience of working with civil servants to know that you know they don't know about early years but they you know, the ones that help and, you know, are the ones who will listen to what you're saying, you know, present it to ministers and to other people and say, well, you know, there are the, these are the things that are a bit difficult or whatever, you know, and we need that sort of approach, whereas we're not getting that. It's all like, yeah, okay, you talk into a complete void. Nothing is ever minuted. They have these round table meetings in the department now and again. I haven't been to one for a long time. There are never any minutes. We have never seen a report on the, all those big Learn, Explore debate meetings they had where there was a lot of feedback on how inappropriate their rewriting was. 
you're never going to see any outcomes of those you know so you're constantly giving and nothing is coming back there's not a two-way so i've just been yeah i'll just be interested to see where the you know where the red lines are to quote theresa may who's not someone i usually try to quote but, um, <laughs> Talking of a change of direction, um, we heard this morning about a baseline assessment, you turn. Yay! Yay! We're all highly delighted. The champagne has now been cracked open here. <laughs> How are we going to persuade schools um, not to be early adopters? My own personal view is that if it's not coming in this year, the last thing these children need in September is, is the baseline assessment. Um, I've not really got my head around why some schools have decided to be early adopters anyway, but given that mm. now, you don't you know it's going to be shelved for at least a year how are we going to persuade those schools that this is not in the best interest of, of the children they go back in september i don't i think that we probably won't need to, so i'm very optimistic obviously but i just think that most of them now they've been told they don't have to do it won't do it anyway even if they are early adopters because that would be completely bonkers because actually you know anyone who's worked with children will know that you know introducing yet another thing the children when they're doing a very difficult transition anyway you know that um it's not going to help because actually it doesn't help anyone that baseline it's only about you know this school's accountability and if we're you know not in that game and most people aren't doing it then i don't think they're going to do it what i'm more concerned about actually although i am concerned about baseline clearly i mean you know completely support not doing it at all i mean it's a complete waste of time money and is oppressive to children in my view so i mean you know why would you do it but i'm even more concerned about the new early learning goals because they're wanting people to be early adopters of those as well and actually you know that is a huge amount of workload because if you change the uifs then the workload for staff increases and i don't know whether that's a good way of looking at it i mean it's not a very child-centered way of looking at it in terms of persuading head teachers who might be you know, always thinking that being an early adopter is somehow a great, great thing to do because you get ahead of the game, whatever the game is. I mean, you know, I don't want to play the game, never mind get ahead of it. But I mean, whether that's a better way of saying, you know, the staff have got enough to do with all these children coming in, you know, in different stages and, you know, the transition, which is another whole issue, is going to be a difficult one for everyone. So therefore, you know, staff don't need a fresh document to look at. And, you know, you need to just get those children back in this year. And there's no need to be an early adopter. We're not doing any of this for another year. So I don't know whether that will be persuasion enough, but... Let's also not forget we are, we're only three weeks away from the end of term and mm. they still haven't been published. So yeah, exactly. When, so when, when are people going to get their heads around it? Mm. Um, I know, exactly. I mean, I think they will be published soon. They've said by the end of June. So, I mean, you know, who knows? But I mean, but I mean, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of work for people to do. And, you know, personally, would I want to spend my summer holidays reading the new early learning goals? I probably will do, but I don't want to. Um, you know, I mean, it just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how we persuade people to not join in because they do, they worry, don't they? That, you know, and I can understand head teachers worrying that, you know, there is so much pressure from outside on heads that actually they need to do anything they can to get ahead of the game or whatever. But actually, they're not doing that. If they think about the children, they're not doing it. I mean, the, I think More Than a Score has got some brilliant little videos from head teachers on their website now as well, which really give that message from head teachers who are just not doing it, you know. Um, 
I think it's sort of good to see. So I don't know whether it's pointing them in that direction and saying, you know, have a look at this. Mm. Um, and it's good that NHT have come out against, you know, saying that they're very pleased with the decision not to do baseline because they have been supporters of baseline. Um, so that is good. So hopefully those people in the NHT who, you know, were going to go along with it might now be thinking, well, my union's saying this is a good thing. So... Hello. I think you're right, Helen, actually, because I think there's, it's probably with baseline, well, and, and seems to have been some momentum anyway, easy to get parents a bit on board about what mm. baseline is and how that might affect their child as they begin mm. in their reception life and their, and their school life. Whereas the ELGs are probably a little bit harder to get that kind of momentum yeah. behind them. So they're harder yeah. to perhaps um, dissuade schools from becoming early adopters of them. Yeah, exactly. Well. Sort of, well, because and also parents think, oh, well, you know, well, my child's happy in school. I don't know what you're doing, but, you know, um, there are, you know, it is much more difficult because parents are really busy. I mean, you know, I know. I mean, I collected my, two of my grandchildren from school yesterday afternoon. And, um, you know, because their parents are trying to, one of them had to go into work. They're both key workers. One of them is a key worker, so that's why they were in school. Um, and, you know, trying to then get their heads around the UIFS. I mean, they tend to ask me about stuff that, you know, and I don't know enough about Key Stage 2 now to be, you know, able to give much help. But, I mean, you know, they, they're not going to be that bothered as long as their children are obviously learning and that, you know, they're happy to go to school and, you know, all the usual stuff. And that, I mean, what they do get bothered about much more is when there's a fallout amongst the children or, you know, something that makes their child unhappy. Yeah much more than they would about curriculum unless you know i mean we have had the front of adverbial conversation as one of them's in year three you know <laughs> as to what on earth is a fronted adverbial <laughs> you know? um but i mean you know i mean apart from that which just seems like well why would you want to know that you know that was the question from their dad you know saying but helen but why why does she need to know that you know i've never known this till now <laughs> so <laughs> Oh. So, you know, but apart from those sort of things, and then middle class parents who, you know, are interested in English grammar. I mean, not everybody is, are they? So, I don't know. I really don't know. I just think we're, you know, that's what I mean about baseline is fairly simple, and, you know, more than a score has got great campaigning. Um, but I think the, the curriculum becomes much more complicated in terms of getting parents on board and also more complicated in, getting, in terms of getting heads on board as well. So, and that's what I mean about thinking, well, is this a time now when we just say, no, you know, this is not okay, um, rather than sort of, you know, saying we're not very happy about this, but we're working with government to try and improve it. And, you know, um, should we get a bit more revolutionary and say, no, it's not all right. We're not doing this anymore. So, but then, you know, trying to get the school sector particularly, well, to get anyone actually, because all of us don't want children to suffer as a result of what we might be doing. So, you know, and of course, we're all aware of all the things that, you know, have been happening for children during lockdown. And it's really important that they come back to school and that they're not in a sort of turbulent situation or trying to make everything, you know, happy for them. And to recognise that actually the, um, the catching up process that the government are talking about 
needs to be really thought about. I mean, Nancy Stewart and I are actually doing um, a session for Craig fairly soon on, we've called it play and language in transition. Because trying to get the idea that, you know, if you want children to make a good transition, you don't, you know, the last thing they need is catching up on the things that they might have missed. Because we've had all these reports and things which talk about, you know, disadvantaged children have lost so many hours compared with their middle class peers and blah, blah, blah. And that somehow we've just got to fill them up with phonics sessions. I mean, it's going to be phonics sessions, isn't it? I mean, you know, unfortunately, things like that. Instead of thinking, OK, language delay is always a risk for all children but it's a particular risk for children living in poverty so if we're concerned about language delay which we should be actually you know and helping children catch up because that's what we're always trying to do anyway then what we need to do is get our sensible child development hats on and think about these children coming back in how do we work with them in order to improve their language skills. Well, we don't sit them down and do phonic sessions with them, clearly, especially not if they're only two and three. I mean, even if they're in reception, what you need to be doing is getting them feeling comfortable in the setting. And by observing their play and doing all that, you know, what Julie Fisher calls the Weight Watch and Wonder stuff, you know, and joining in and injecting language when they need it and want it, you will be much more likely to help them catch up with language. You know, that focus. Um, from staff on things that are to do with children following their interests rather than, you know, just saying, right, okay, we've got all these children whose language is all, you know, terrible, which, you know, are valid concerns. But actually, can we just relax a bit into that idea of looking at what the children are doing rather than thinking we've got this agenda of catch-up, which will be, unfortunately, for reception teachers and nursery teachers in school, there will be a lot of that coming from head teachers, I suspect. You know, we've got to catch them up. We've got to catch them up. And actually, that whole, I mean, I can't bear that term accelerated progress. It's just like, I think child development takes time. In fact, learning and development take time for all of us, regardless. I mean, you know, that's even longer for me at my advanced age now. But I mean, you know, um, we can't rush children through child development just because they've missed so much schooling. Mm -hmm. Because it's so arrogant to think that they have learnt nothing in the time they've been at home. The fact that they haven't been doing school-based activities, some of them, doesn't mean they haven't been learning. Um, they may have been plonked in front of the telly for unacceptably long hours of the day, etc. We don't know, but they may well have been learning things that are important life skills. I mean, the idea of cultural capital, which Ofsted has oh, put into the, up the inspection framework, um, from, I think, a position of, well, according to their video, it's mainly about vocabulary and a deficit model of disadvantaged children not having enough vocabulary. Um, and instead of recognising that cultural capital is something we all have and that all children bring and all that stuff, you know, Liz Chesworth's research on children's funds of knowledge is fascinating. You know, the funds of knowledge that children bring, they are not empty vessels waiting for us to fill them. They learn all the time and they bring stuff with them, regardless of how disadvantaged or impoverished one might think their background is but we're not going to find out if we never listen to what they say or observe what they do and I think you know we're going to learn quite a lot I mean in the article I wrote for you I used a lot of um, David Yates's stuff mm -hmm. on his reception class yeah and one of the things he says is about how much he's learned from the children and I just thought you know that really 
is the point, isn't it? He's embraced the fact that, I mean, he's got, like many teachers, he's had a group of children in school that he's teaching every day, but he's also got this bigger group of children who are not in school. But he's talking about how much he's learned from his dialogue with the parents about their cultural backgrounds. I mean, David is very open to those things. I mean, he's written things before about, you know, finding out about things he didn't know about just because he's listened to the children and been open to them and found out things about their heritage and background that they wouldn't have necessarily told him if he hadn't been the sort of teacher that he is because he's been open and listened and said oh I don't really understand that can you tell me a bit more about that you know what does that mean and you know ask those questions instead of thinking oh well I know it all you know I'm the teacher so I'm more knowledgeable than you recognizing that actually these children have got vast funds of knowledge and of course the parents of you know then contributed. I mean, there's some lovely, there's some examples of that from his blog in the article about, you know, the, the parents talking about how they felt when he sent a hug to their child and, you know, all of that. And you think that's the important stuff. That is the important stuff. I mean, David gives a wicked phonics session, but that's not really, you know, what the, that's not what it's about, is it? You know, so... Yeah, we need to just get our priorities right, I think. Well, I, think I, I listened to a um, talk by Julie Fisher actually um, last week, a webinar, and mm. she said, you know, about starting where the children are and not where yeah. someone else expects them to be. Yeah. Um, and she also made a really good point, is that a catch-up curriculum isn't going to help them develop sort of, or won't it? That it's not going to help them develop their knowledge and understanding um, because they're not going to be secure in what they're doing. Um, normally, a catch up, you know, because you're trying to catch up, you're rushing through things. So these children aren't, they're not having the full experience they deserve. No, exactly. And this is this is where we, you know, practitioners really need to be focusing on, definitely. Mm. Oh, no, I totally agree, Ben. And I mean, Julie's absolutely right. She's done lovely, um, some really nice work on the transition stuff. And she's really good on it. You know, that's her area of expertise, particularly the key stage one stuff. Mm-hmm. So we've just, yeah, I mean, she and I and Nancy and Di Chilvers have just put a little... And, and Beatrice from Education have just tried to put a little paper together on some proposals for transition and get around that sort of, you know, let us have the first term where we're just, you know, getting children back in gently to where they were rather than rushing them forward into where they're going to be next. So, you know, if you were in reception, you go back to reception rather than starting immediately in year one. Go back and get to, you know, reconnect with your friends. Because I think one of the things that's really forgotten in all of this is about children's peer groups. I mean, what you know, these children are all ages where friends are beginning to matter hugely. They have a social life outside their home and family. Now, we've all had to cope with having a social life that's become somewhat constrained, you know. But, of course, as adults, we are able to do things like this. You know, we can just... You know, we can see our family and friends like this whenever we want. We can see our friends like this. I mean, they may be able to, if they've got the wherewithal at home, they may be able to, you know, have a Zoom with their gran or, you know, whatever. They've been doing those sorts of things. But actually, they haven't probably been able to do very much of that with their peers at all, unless they're a bit older than early years. So actually being able to get in, you know, and... Those relationships are important relationships. It's almost like we sort of forget that. Oh, you know, the children in groups on a piece of paper somewhere or a spreadsheet, you know, on someone's laptop. And actually, rather than thinking this is about, you know, these children haven't seen each other 
ages and they're good friends you know they need to reconnect and you know swap stories like we all do about what have you been doing since I last saw you you know all of that stuff and what lockdown was like and what's happened and some of them are going to have had terrible experiences I mean some of them will have coped with bereavement and illness and you know so they have time you know to meet their friends again to meet the, to go back to where they were so that they were familiar practitioners and make the transition from there rather than straight from home into a new class or a new setting you know so we just put this little little paper together and I think you know I think a lot of people are going to be doing that I hope there's going to be a lot of advocacy for you know transitions which actually are child-centered rather than just adult convenience center because of course you know of course it's more convenient to say right my lot are now in year one we'll put them all in and you know that's it now oh, a bit of crying and screaming well you know we can cope with that I mean that always you know has always upset me the idea that it's fine for children to be really upset because they'll soon get over it now Obviously, children are going to be upset. It's called separation anxiety, isn't it? We know about it. Um, it's, they're going to be upset on transition. But actually, one can ameliorate that by the way in which you greet that, the numbers you have in at a time. You know, because I have not yet met a practitioner who doesn't get deeply distressed by hearing children crying. I mean, you know, it is very difficult to hear a child crying in distress as an earliest practitioner and not be upset by it. I mean, it's awful. Um, because you hear it, don't you? I mean, I know even when I was ahead, you'd walk down the corridor and hear a distressed child who'd only just arrived. I mean, we had a lot of children who came in suddenly, you know. Um, and it would get to your heart, as it does, you know. And we don't want that. We don't want that because it gets to your heart because you know you're identifying with someone else's suffering. We don't want that, you know, to go on for long. What we need to be doing is if someone's suffering in our setting, for whoever they are, whether they remember a staff or a child or whatever, we need to be there for them. You know, not just have them lumped in with a load of people and they could all cry together. I mean, that's not how, you know, not how a good setting or a school works, is it? You know, so the thought that actually all this spreadsheet work is just going to result in that just seems like, well, no, we've got to, we've got to put the human bit in there somehow. And I think, you know, I mean, good settings and schools will do that. I mean, they've been doing it for years, haven't they? They're not going to suddenly say, right, okay, well, we're going to change everything now. So... You know, but we need to make sure that that message gets out there. That that's okay. You know, it's not about, you know, well, the government says you can all go back. So just go back and sort it out, you know. Um. I've read some lovely messages on our forum um, mm. from practitioners who have been welcoming more children back. Mm. And it really resonates with what you said, Helen, about children and their relationships and their friendships at a very young age because yeah. so many of those comments have uh, so obviously there was the build-up this yeah. is the staff talking obviously the build-up and the stress yeah. and the regulations and the guidance and then this oh, and then, God, and then the children messages. <laughs> <laughs> and then the children arrive and then the message is changed to the joy on the children's faces the time that mm, the children yeah. needed to reconnect as you say and to express that joy yeah. to each other but also so many comments were so positive about the children's resilience even if they had had challenging mm. circumstances at home mm. and i think it's just it you forget as you say that they have they are citizens and little people and they have their own feelings and their own relationships yeah. and they want to reconnect with those and yeah. when you give them time to do that yeah then they're ready to learn yeah exactly and I mean you know as adults we're privileged to hang out with groups of children like that and I just think you know we should remember that it is a privilege 
actually to be part of their world because it is a very interesting world and a very important world we know that you know we know we're all you know a bit of you know we're all walking around as our living history aren't we of our of our childhoods i mean any psychologist who starts studying human behavior always ends up looking back to early childhood because that's where it all starts that's where we write the scripts etc you know so we need to be careful with them. We need to realise it's a privilege, but also be very careful with those little people and treat them with a lot of respect and, you know, understanding that actually, yes, they don't know the things we know. They haven't had the life experiences we've had, but they have opinions and they have their own life experiences and they have things to offer us if we just would listen. I mean, you know, I really, I love a quote from Vivian Gust. In Paley, actually, and I can't remember it in great detail, but I mean, she was such a great educator. And, you know, she talks about how she realized that she was not the bestower of curriculum, that actually, you know, that what happened when she stopped talking and the children went back to playing was so much richer than while she was talking. And that's why, you know, she became one of these, I mean, an amazing documenter of children's play and also an amazing intervene in completely the right way in terms of getting children to be able to articulate their stories and all of that you know and we see it I mean you know I mean luckily we have great heritage in all the work that Trisha Lee and people are doing you know around that I mean you know there's someone who who was the most amazing educator and yet realized that actually what she needed to do was just take that step back and let the children have their agenda and that's what all her writing's about really isn't it so you know, I just think, yeah, we need to remember those things. You know, sometimes it's always important, isn't it, in times of trouble to remember the important stuff and not get distracted by the sort of the all the stuff that goes on around it, you know, that isn't that important really. Because actually, regardless of any government guideline, every good early years practitioner knows what is best for children. They don't need a guideline to tell them. You know, they're there, aren't they, with them. And if they're tuned in, and they've got that really good relationship with those children, they will be able to do it, you know, regardless of what the government says about transition or anything, really. I mean, so that is always where I'm optimistic, because I always think, yeah, you know, we can do that. No, there is, there is hope, because there are people who understand children around, you know. Um, so, you know, hopeful. I think on that hopeful note and that wonderful ending of let's hang on to what we as early years practitioners know is important. Mm. I think that might be a good place to, to stop. Okay. Helen, thank you so much. It's been just so interesting having this conversation that began with, you know, the socioeconomic Mm. issues before we entered the pandemic and has kind of ended with you know where we might be able to go and what we should hang on to and what we and what we know what we know mm. exactly. we know it already we just have to just be able to do it <laughs> thanks for listening and um, don't forget to subscribe so that you can listen again next time thanks bye